the industry has improved tremendously or progressed tremendously over the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years in terms of measuring efficiency in confined cattle that are consuming a, you know, a more dense diet, maybe more energy dense, more grain, less forage. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. So welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. Our guest this morning is Dr. David Lawman from Oklahoma State University. He is a professor and extension beef cattle specialist there and holds the Harrington Endowed Chair with a split extension and research appointment. He works primarily in the beef cattle industry, focused on cow-calf and stocker cattle production. His extension and applied research program includes beef cattle nutrition and management with emphasis on beef cattle grazing and genetic by environment interactions in beef production systems. His program goals are to provide producers with information and decision tools to facilitate production system profitability, improve cow herd efficiency, and to improve product quality. At Oklahoma State, Dr. Lawman serves as the Animal Science Extension Program Coordinator and the Supervisor for the Range Cow Research Center. Welcome, Dr. Lawman. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you here today, and we've got a handful of topics that we um, are excited to chat with you about. But let's just start with you maybe just giving us a little bit of background for our listeners so they know a little bit more about you. Of course. So I was born and uh, raised in southeast Kansas on a diversified family farm, Uh, attended uh, junior college there, and then wound up at Kansas State University for my undergraduate uh, from there, uh, went on to uh, Montana State University, with uh, completed a master's degree while I worked as a herdsman at their uh, beef cattle unit there in Bozeman, Montana. That was a great experience. A little cold in the winter time, but uh, it was uh, it was uh, neat to learn. You know, a totally different world, really, compared to what I had been used to in Kansas. From there. Um, I continued on to University of Missouri, uh, had not intended or planned to get a PhD, but uh, had a job opportunity as an extension associate in beef cattle production at the University of Missouri. And part of the job requirement was to be working towards a PhD within a five-year period. And so I decided, well, that sounded like a pretty good combination, even though that wasn't in the original plan. And it worked out great. We had a a wonderful experience there at the University of Missouri. And after that, uh, once I completed my degree there, uh, moved on down here to Oklahoma State and have been here since 1996. So you've been at one faculty position then for your whole faculty career. I have. Yes, ma'am. And, you know, uh, Oklahoma State's been good to us, and we're tickled to have uh, resources for applied uh, research program that I'm involved in, and then I have a split appointment in extension. Uh, actually, have 35% research appointment, and the re- remainder in extension. So I think it's always interesting, you know, 
we get graduate students and stuff that come through our programs and they're like, oh, I need to find the perfect job right out of the gate. And I tell them, it's like, with the possible exception of faculty, you're going to have lots of jobs in your lifetime. And it seems like faculty are a lot more mobile than they used to be, right? We're constantly struggling to make sure we keep really top-notch faculty because they get snatched up by industry or, or by other institutions. But I think you said the magic word there, and that was resources, right? So... Oklahoma State provided you the has provided you the resources that fits your research interests, provides you a platform for your extension. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean that combination has fit me well. I think it's a it's a really good combination. Uh, but you know, I don't know. I, I can't speak to the teaching slash research appointment, or you you could speak better to that. But uh, the research and extension split appointment has been really good for me because I have, you know, opportunity to interact a lot uh, with the industry, with producers. And, uh, you know, my, my research questions come basically from industry conversations, questions, uh, priorities, and then my extension program uh, today, especially after I've been at this for a while, uh, is, you know, it includes a lot of our you know, of, of our research program, research results, if you will. But maybe before uh, we we continue down that path, I just I probably should clarify, uh, even though I've been here at Oklahoma State for quite a while, I was kind of on the, at least my family thought I was on the lifetime uh, graduate program because I had a, I had a three-year uh, master's degree program. A lot of students get finished up in two years at Montana State and then a five-year program there at the University of Missouri. So I didn't get started. <laughs> I was a late bloomer, I guess, didn't get started in my faculty position until, you know, quite a bit later than most of our students do. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, everybody has a different path to graduate school. And it's very common, right, for folks working in forage systems, Um to have a longer master's degree, right, than two years, because you're dependent on the amazing thing called Mother Nature, right? Did it, was this a drought year? Was this the one in 50 years that we got 150% of the rainfall, right? Like, it's just so subjective. I always tell people, I'm the lazy end of beef cattle nutrition, being a feedlot nutritionist, because I make a total mixed ration, and I put it in a bunk, and I tell them to eat it, right? Like, and as long as I haven't screwed anything up, that usually works fine. And so each mouthful should be really nutritionally complete. And then you folks that have to struggle with, you know, cows selecting whatever the heck they want to eat on your pasture, individual feed intakes are not a thing, you know, you just have totally different challenges than we do in the feedlot. Yeah, no, no question about that. Um, yeah, I, lots of variation. We've, we've done some systems research here. In fact, I've got a, a four-year experiment that we need to get published and good night. It was, uh, yeah, you're right. It was a challenge. Everything was a moving target <laughs> and it was just, it was a challenge. Yeah. From year to year. So before we move on to talk a little bit about some of your um, research and stuff, I wanted to just kind of revisit your comment about the fact that you didn't think you were going to go down the route of a PhD. And I was having this conversation with a student the other day and told him, when I finished my bachelor's degree, I applied for a job and they told me they thought I'd be bored within six months and would quit the job. So I should probably go to graduate school. And I didn't even really know what that was. And after I finished my master's degree, 
I went for my master's because I thought I was interested in extension. And thank God I didn't go down the extension route because you people have to be a jack of all trades. And I don't think my type A tendencies would fit very well there. I would be like, I need to know this thing extremely well and be the expert. And you folks have to be so flexible. Like it's such a, an amazing trait that you have as extension personnel to be like, oh, today's problem du jour, right? Like, <laughs> um, so talk to us a little bit more about how, you know, that opportunity came about to, to do the PhD and how, you know, even just how'd you know that that was the right move for you? Um, well, I don't know if it was the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, but, uh, you know, I did have uh, throughout some of that time period graduate program, I had opportunity uh, to go into industry uh, j- jobs. And I chose, you know, as I, as my graduate program progressed, my recognition of what I really enjoyed doing, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it improved or maybe it was kind of kind of solidified uh, maybe not the best way to describe that but uh, I understood myself a little better as I matured through my graduate program and I recognized that I would probably do better in a position where I had more freedom uh, freedom to um, you know pursue, research questions, extension programs that I felt like were important and, um, and really interesting, really interesting to me. If I were to go to industry, you know, you lose quite a bit of that flexibility. So that, that would have been, that would have been a big part of my decisions there to continue down the academic path. Obviously, you know, there are a lot of differences. We talked to students and uh, others about, you know, the difference between industry and academics. And, and there are a lot of differences. There are a lot of similarities, too, in terms of paperwork, red tape, and all those kind of things that we have to deal with in today's environment. But uh, that, was an important, uh, that was an important part of my decision. Yeah, I totally identify with that. The idea that you could have a lot of independence and you can, you know, really follow your curiosity. That's when I'm when I'm interviewing potential graduate students. I'm just I'm looking for the curiosity, right? Like the kid that can get passionate about whatever I'm passionate about that week, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that and that's a good match. Uh, because yeah, you want to have a skip in your step when you go to work in the morning. And if you know that those people around you are passionate about what you're interested in, what you're doing, and you all can see progress, uh, you can see that you're actually, you know, having an impact, even though it might be slow, <laughs> it might be slow to develop. Uh, that's a lot of fun and it's, it's rewarding. So let's follow this train of thought. Um, tell us what some of your major curiosities that you've tracked over your career. What were some of the questions that, you know, you've kind of been working for a couple of decades now to find the answers towards? Sure. Well, it, it has changed, uh, you know, as when I started my career, um, Dr. Hansen, it was, I would say that I did primarily or worked on a little bit of the th- a few of the things that I was really interested in, but more of the things that I could find funding for. So true. Okay. And yeah. And so as I have 
you know, stayed in this position as, you know, OSU has provided us with resources uh, uh, to continue down the path of things that I was interested in, I've been able to focus more. Now, I'm still an extension, and so I have to answer the phone every day with different phone calls, so my attention gets diverted a lot from these research questions that I'm really interested in. But to answer your question, over time, my interest has grown in the role of the cow in terms of, I don't know how you want to look at it, sustainability, carbon footprint, cow efficiency, uh, you know, the beef cow uh, produce, you know, if we want to talk about sustainability, you know, we, we can ha- we can have a long discussion about this. And I know you you know it well, but um, while beef cattle production is actually probably not any kind of a have a negative impact on the environment at the end of the day, uh, the cow actually produces about 80 to 80 I don't know, you see different numbers, maybe 79 to 83% somewhere in there of, of methane that's produced in the cattle industry. And so, you know, if, if there's more recently, there's federal funding available to do that kind of work. And it's related to uh, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions are related to a lot of the production things that I'm interested in. Feed intake, uh, unit of production per unit of feed intake, you know, uh, energetic efficiency, maintenance, energy requirements, milk production, so on and so forth. And so um, that's kind of that's kind of well, maybe a long explanation, but uh, over time I've been able to, to focus more on on that area, and those that's probably our, our my biggest focus right now. Yeah. So I'm a couple of threads I want to tug on there. So one of them would be, I um, understand that sustainability is such a challenging thing to study on the cow side, because we don't even really have a great understanding of the carbon sequestration value that's basically not really being attributed to in a lot of the models, right? So, you know, we're, we're kind of getting the the ding against us that says, yes, those cows or stalkers who are out on high forage low quality feedstuffs are producing the majority of the methane that gets produced within the beef cattle system. Because of course, feeding grain diets in the feedlot changes that room in microbial population a little bit. We don't have as much protozoa. We don't have as much of some of the different vet bugs that are going to make methane. And so we, you know, that's part of why we feed grain because they're less, they're, they're more efficient. I always love to think about efficiency from a nutritional standpoint, right? Because anything that I can do that keeps carbons or energy from being diverted towards a gas that the cow is going to belch out, as opposed to a carbon that becomes a volatile fatty acid that she's going to use for meat, milk, you know, fetal production, whatever. So maybe talk to us a little bit about what are some of the strategies? You know, you mentioned you've been doing some long-term systems research. What are some of the things that you guys have been investigating that would ultimately, you know, hopefully help producers figure out how to improve the sustainability of beef production, whether it's with a climate change eye or whether it is with a just sustainability and profitability eye? So uh, one of the things that we've spent quite a bit of time and effort in developing is a, a model, a system, a facility to measure individual animal intake of long stem, unprocessed forage hay, in other words. Um, and we think the uh, dry, long stem, unprocessed is an important piece of the equation. 
so we started there. Well, we didn't start there, but that's where we're at right now. And it's an important piece because no, very few other people are doing that. Uh, there's The industry has improved tremendously or progressed tremendously over the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years in terms of measuring efficiency in confined cattle that are consuming a, you know, a more dense diet, maybe more energy dense, more grain, less forage. It's generally going to be processed and it's generally going to contain a substantial amount of moisture. All of those things have an impact. Now, we don't know if there's an interaction or not uh, with an animal's propensity to consume feed. But so, so for that reason, because those, you know, the characteristics of the, of the diets that we do have a pretty good handle on, i.e. more energy dense uh, diets for growing cattle, um, we don't know if they match a cow's propensity to consume long stem dry forage, which is where cows have to make their living. Uh, so I've been stubborn about that, and we have developed a system to measure that on an individual animal basis. Uh, and it's not easy, uh, but we've kind of finally, after eh, it's taken us about three years to get our facility up and going, uh, we've uh, uh, submitted a provisional patent for that system and uh, it seems to be working pretty well right now. So Dr. Hansen, we've begun, began, 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 <laughs> <laughs> we have started to learn about uh, some of those characteristics on an individual animal basis. Uh, and, you know, the very simple, one of the very first things we have discovered is that the variation from cow to cow and we're talking about cows in the same contemporary group is amazing, right? There's, we have discovered cows that might be the same body weight, the same frame size. And one, and during, let's say during gestation, one cow might consume 20 pounds and maintain her condition score of, of grass hay. And another cow might, the other cow might consume 40 pounds. We had an example, another example of a cow in one, one contemporary group, uh, well, three cows, but we'll, we'll just talk about two of them. One of them actually, uh, during lactation, consumed 23 pounds, uh, and she maintained her body condition score year-round at around a five and a half. Another cow consumed 43 pounds, and she was a little bit of a hard keeper, but she produced a lot of milk. Uh, these are three-year-old cows, and both of those cows wean 600-pound calves. You know, which one would you want? Uh, if, if assuming they can both be productive in terms of weaning 600-pound calves and assuming they can both maintain their body condition score and assuming, you know, all of the reproductive efficiency is in and equal. Uh, you know, if you had a ranch that could stock a 1,000 of the 40-plus-pound cows, that same ranch could stock 2,000 of the 20 plus pound cows. Now that, that's a major, I mean, an extreme example. And those are the extreme ends of that contemporary group, but the potential is just incredible. Okay. I have questions. 
So um, first of all, I always think it's so fascinating when we start talking about the tales of things, right? Because that's where either we've screwed something up scientifically and we shouldn't have them out there, or more likely there's something really fascinating happening, right? Like it's like, why is this one be so good and this other one is so bad? We need to really focus on the extremes. Um, and that is the, about the only place that animal variation helps us out in ruminant nutrition <laughs> research. So, so my question is, um, have you looked at uh, like total tract digestibility or rumen digestibility in those cows to see if it's just improvement in diet digestibility that's happening? Or is it post-absorptive maintenance things that are happening? Do they have differences in the sodium potassium ATPase or, you know, things that might affect efficiency? Uh, so we have, as we have in that particular set of cows, no. Uh, that was one of our first attempts and we were doing good to measure individual hay intake. As we have uh, progressed here, we are starting to do those things, measure digestibility. Uh, you know, now we're incorporating greenhouse gas emissions, which gives us the capability to hone in a little better on their maintenance energy requirements. Uh, that, that's kind of a theoretical number, so it's hard to pin down, but at least we can uh, characterize it, even if it's not perfect. And, and the greenhouse gas emissions helps us do that. So we, over time here, we should be able to determine if a big part of that difference between the 20-pound cow and the 40-pound cow are maintenance requirements uh, or if their efficiency of converting available energy to net energy, that is energy that's used for milk or increasing body condition score or growing the fetus, uh, if that efficiency is improved, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, the one other thing we've done so far, Dr. Hansen, that's kind of, I thought was interesting. Uh, I had a student uh, uh, do some, um, oh, I'm having a hard time coming up with the term. Here's the part they're going to have to cut out. Uh, <laughs> what, tell me, let's see, remind me. Uh, oh, uh, RNA sequencing work, uh, and she discovered, uh, well, in her work, cows that consumed a lot of feed down-regulated a satiety signal. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so they did. They The big eaters down-regulated glucagon-like peptide. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I thought that was fascinating uh, that you know, the downregulation of a gene might actually describe some of that variation. And, you know, maybe we need to look for cows that don't do that. Yeah, no, I, th I think stuff like neuropeptide Y, like we just taught our feed intake lecture in my advanced nutrition class a couple of weeks ago. And I am fascinated by the hormones like ghrelin and leptin that affect, you know, driving feed intake up and down respectively. Um, Okay, so my other question is, have you looked at the calves of those cows? So you said they weaned 600-pound calves. Have you taken those calves and then done feed efficiency assessments with them or, you know, digestibility assessments to see if that's heritable? Yeah, no, we have not. Uh, we're starting to do more of that now. Uh, we have a USDA-funded uh, post-weaning experiment now where we'll be able to collect more of that data. Uh, but... And, and heritability requires a lot of observations. And, you know, it, with our feed intake facility at the cow unit, we're able to, depend on if it's gestating cows 50 or so at a time, 
if it's lactating cows, probably 40 or so at a time. And so, you know, we, we, we would need to expand our facility to collect enough data over time. Now, over, over the years, you know, if we keep doing it consistently, we would eventually should be able to come up with a, a heritability, um, at least among the cows. But, yeah, we're working in that direction, but uh, that's going to be a challenge just because of the numbers required. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, and again, an example of a place to dig into the outliers because you're more likely to, you know, figure that out more quickly if you can keep going. But you got to have a place to start with them too. So I get that. I, I partly ask, and I want to transition us over to talking a little bit about um, opportunities for for stalker cattle and stuff uh, right now. And my my thought process here is uh, we were on a feed efficiency grant from the USDA uh, several years ago. And one of the things that's always stuck with me from our data, we would have cattle that were fed down at University of Missouri when Monte Curley was there, and they would be um, kind of grown in their grow safe um, system, right? So we had individual feed intake. They were either on like a whole shell corn, high concentrate base grower diet, very, very little hay, if any, and then um, versus a higher forage, incre- insert your favorite alage here, right? Rylage, silage, whatever Monty had on hand each year, right? And then when they would come to Iowa State for their finishing phase, um, I would have a subset of them in our grow safe uh, equipped pens. And we use titanium dioxide as an indigestible marker to measure total tract um, feed efficiency or uh, diet digestibility. And one of the things that we found is that if you were a rock star feed efficient calf on a high grain diet and you went onto a finishing grain diet, you had no differences in like digestibility of starch digestibility of fiber. There was nothing basically in the GI tract that was explaining why that calf was such a good feed efficient performer in his growing phase on grain. So it's probably post-absorptive stuff for him, which makes a lot of sense. But on the forage guys, if you were a rock star feed efficient calf on a high forage growing diet, they had 10 to 12% percentage units better NDF and ADF um, digestibility when I looked at the best feed efficient fiber calves and the low, lowest feed efficient calves that have been grown on that high fiber diet. And I always, and which makes a lot of sense, right? That's why they rose to the top on the feed efficiency chart, because they were making the best use of the resources we gave them. But I've always thought how fascinating would it be if you could basically be at weaning and say, this calf comes from a line of superior fiber digesters. He, regardless of his weight, he should go to corn stalks or wheat pasture or something because he's going to make the most efficient use of that forage resource. And this guy doesn't really have that genetics. He's going to go to the feed yard because we're just going to get the most efficient feed into him and get him out the door. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so kind of related to that, I don't have to think about it for a while to see if it matches up. But, uh, uh, you know, we've got, let's see, we've got two cow experiments now, one published, one yet to be published. We have two uh, growing studies with, well, replacement heifers where we have, we've either used a switchback design where <clears throat> they've gotten concentrate-based diet first followed by hay and mineral or the other way around. Uh, and then we've got on that, on the heifer study, the replacement heifer study, they just get hay for about 70 to 80 days. And then we switch them to a mixed, a total mixed diet. So a little bit of the same kind of comparisons, efficiency consuming, you know, a forage diet. And, and this is strictly a forage diet versus a more energy dense diet. 
what we've discovered so far and all, let's see, there's four of our experiments thus far, and we can find two in the literature that are similar. I need to look into to that one again. I've seen the one you just talked about, uh, but probably need to re revisit that and see if it matches up as well. Anyway, bottom line is what we see thus far in all of those studies, our four and the two that are published with growing cattle, uh, is that the relationship or the correlation for feed intake, uh, where the whether the animals are consuming an energy-dense mixed diet or a forage diet is positive. It's positive and somewhere in the range of maybe 0 0.3, 0 0.35, up to as high as around maybe 0.7, and that's a phenotypic correlation. Uh, however, to me, the interesting part is that the weight gain, average daily gain, the correlation is zero to negative. Okay, zero to negative for cattle, you know, consuming straight hay or, or not straight hay in all of those studies. In our studies, it would be straight hay, but versus an energy-dense diet. So, you know, what basically I think what I learned from that is that's why we have no relationship between the two diets in in whatever feed efficiency measure you want to use, residual average daily gain, residual feed intake, uh, feed to gain, there's no correlation. And that's because of the average daily gain. It's not because of the feed intake for the most part. And, and perhaps that has to do with the, the digestibility um, or at least that maybe that explains a, a portion of that. But if there's zero correlation in average daily gain, what that tells you, there's a, there's a bell curve, right, around those animals. Some cattle are not very good at either. Some cattle are pretty good at both, uh, and some cattle are good at one but not the other. So I think, you know, obviously we would like to find the animals that are good in terms of at least average daily gain and certainly feed efficiency in both of those environments. Yeah, it's interesting to wonder whether, you know, the fact that your feed intakes are positively correlated, suggesting if they were high on one, they were high on the other, or low on one, low on the other, that maybe that could be a hormonal feed intake driver that that could play a role in there. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see what the rumen microbes look like in those cows, right? Like are some of the, are those heifers, this, are some of those just, you know, not very set up, even in the, even if we do all the right things for transitioning and stuff like that to get them over to higher energy, um, that they can't take as much advantage of it. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about um, a segment of the industry that I think is it kind of sends up kind of being our middleman between our cow calf segment and our feedlot segment, and that would be the stalker industry. Um, so up here in the uh, Great White Northern Plains, where I am in Iowa, um, our stalker industry would be relatively limited. It might depend if you have corn stalks available or some flexibility from that. Um, but I think in your part of the country, in Oklahoma and Kansas and places like that, where we have things like wheat pasture or the Flint Hills, things like that, where we have alternatives to background cattle on hopefully lower input cost kind of situations that we can grow those cattle from calves up to yearlings and then bring them into the feed yard at a heavier weight. We have to put less resources into them at the yard and they're out the door more quickly. So we were talking a little bit in our pre-show about how maybe some of the economics relatively recently here in the fall of 2022 have said this could be a pretty profitable option for people. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Well, I mean, any time uh, grain prices in particular are high, it makes stocker producers and even cow-calf producers, but particularly stocker producers, forage more valuable uh, because the weight gain is, is more valuable. Obviously, it's going to cost more in the feed yard. And so, you know, those, um, to, to some extent, the cattle feeding industry is willing to give up uh, in terms of price to, to get those cattle at a heavier weight, and that benefits the stalker industry. We're fortunate in Oklahoma, you know, to have uh, pretty good uh, summer pasture systems. Uh, you could argue that our, our native range uh, might be really good quality. Uh, I heard uh, one of my colleagues that is now retired, he used to say Oklahoma had 60 days of good quality forage in May and June on native pasture. But, I mean, really, it's it's pretty good. We can sustain uh, through the growing season. We can, well, early part of the growing season, we can sustain two and a half pounds pretty easily on a growing animal and on summer, good quality uh, summer pasture. And then we're fortunate in Oklahoma to have uh, this wheat pasture enterprise or wheat production enterprise in our on our farm ground and so therefore we can grow cattle in our in the stalker industry year round because we have high quality access to high quality forage pretty much year round you could argue late summer maybe we don't have as much as as you might have in other parts of the country uh, but re- more recently uh, the opportunity has been good for stalker producers just because grain prices were have been high here in the in recent months and the cost of uh, replacement cattle or lighter calves to turn out on stalker pastures uh, has been has been about the same price as the cattle when you sell them weighing another two, three, three hundred fifty pounds. And anytime that happens, you know your uh, the value of gain is about the same price as the cattle. And gosh, that's uh, that's a big advantage for a stalker producer. Have a pretty wide margin uh, available there for profitability. In terms of flexibility for the beef industry, you know, stockering is such an important segment because it means that we don't have all the calves coming to the hotel at the feedlot on the same day, right? It's like having a conference and every room is booked. We can't have them all show up on October 15th when we wean all those springborn calves. So it, it allows flexibility for people to bring calves of different sizes into the yards at different times. And that also coupled with springborn and fallborn herds allows us to basically have a continuous production of beef, even though there definitely is some seasonality to it, right? And, and different challenges and stuff that come with that. Um, what are some of the research, uh, or maybe thinking about from your extension hat here, Dr. Lawman, what are some of the big questions you tend to get from producers who are either considering stockering for a season when they haven't done it before, or some of your season stockers, what's, what are some of the questions that are usually on their mind? Well, I, you know, especially for people that have native grass systems, uh, they're going to be concerned about supplementation programs uh, because the, the uh, I mean, our, our research for years and years, even before my time here in Oklahoma, have shown that once you get past, oh, about middle of June, maybe early July, cattle respond fairly dramatically and efficiently to a small package of protein supplement. And so producers are, you know, obviously very interested in that. Anytime you can get 
you know, a big bang for a small supplement that doesn't cost too much, you know, they're, they're going to apply that quote technology and, and they have and do. And so that's, that's pretty common. Uh, some people rely on a stalker production system that basically where they purchase some of those more inexpensive calves that come flooding in, in October and November and they just quote dry winter them, okay, which just means we turn them out on a big pasture, we provide a little bit of protein supplement, and we don't worry about how much they gain uh, until, you know, next spring they get those cattle back in right before uh, or, or about the time of green up, you know, the, those cattle will be uh, processed, probably implanted and turned out and they just take off and grow. They might've only gained a half to three quarter, quarter pound a day through the winter on that old, you know, dry standing forage. And by the way, very little hay is fed in that system. It generally relies on standing forage. And of course, you know, this year we've got, you know, the, the drought kind of rears its head here as well, because those folks wouldn't have the opportunity to take in as many cattle to winter this year. But that's a, that dry wintering is one production system. Uh, and, of course, we've had a lot of questions over the years about how to manage those cattle. Should we push them a little bit harder? Are we better off just providing just bare minimum, a pound or two pounds a day of a little bit of supplement to make sure we've met their protein requirements? Should we implant them in the fall? Or is that going to benefit us or not? Does that have an impact on you know, summer gain and then feed yard performance and marbling. Those are the kind of questions I'd say we get in that system. Dr. Gerald Horn retired here a few years ago, and he spent his entire career trying to help people with those kind of questions in our wheat pasture grazing system. Okay, and so he did all kinds of work to explore opportunities, you know, to improve efficiency in that system, to find out uh, you know, if when wheat pasture was slow in materializing in the fall, in other words, we hadn't gotten enough rain to get it up and growing well or something, you know, can you supplement, let's say, you know, half a percent of their body weight in some energy dense, you know, concentrate feed or one percent of their body weight uh, to sort of get you to green forage? And if you do that, does it reduce their performance later on? And then he answered, he tried to answer a lot of the implant questions too. Uh, and then he took off and tried to resolve some of the mineral questions, uh, mineral supplementation questions on wheat pasture. So all of those would be uh, questions that we've had in our stalker industry. I mean, I'm sure all over the, all over the, the country, but we're a little bit unique here in that we have, you know, two radically different uh, forage systems with the, the wheat pasture and then the summer pasture. I I agree. That's one of the really unique opportunities that you've had there at Oklahoma State to study those those different systems, and the stalker segment of the beef industry. Just from a financial standpoint, kind of fascinates me because it's really the only segment that has some degree of flexibility. I mean, maybe not if your whole business is dependent on stalkers, um, but you know, if you're the cow person you know, it's either have the cows or don't have the cows. There's not a whole lot in between or scale down how many cows you have. If you're in the feedlot, you've already got the infrastructure and the dollars and the employees and everybody else there, right? Like you need to keep it full as much as possible. Um, but the stockers can be like, oh, this is a, the year where I could get $50 to $100 per head instead of making that other marketing choice like I might typically do. Or this is the year where that's not the option. We're going to, you know, 
move that that resource into something else. So I think that's so interesting. And like you said, lots of questions. The the implant one will become more of an issue when we change some new rules next year. Um, you know, there might be some some more opportunities to say, make sure those stalker cattle got implanted ahead of time because we're only going to have chance for one implant once they get to the feedlot, depending what that looks like. Right. Yeah. So, um, so what other challenges do you think producers are facing right now? What are some of the things that you're fielding phone calls about or, or things that you think our, our listeners might be interested in? Well, most everyone in this region are very short on hay inventory and standing forage inventory. And so that's been our big emphasis from an extension standpoint, uh, really starting a year ago this last October. Right. So we've been working at this for over a year. And, you know, we have drought, especially here in Oklahoma. I don't know, every four, five, six years, some degree of drought. Uh, this year, this time has been a li- probably more similar to what we experienced in 2011 and 2012. Uh, maybe not quite as extreme, but actually even a little bit longer period of time here without uh, what we'd call a you know, a runoff type rain event where uh, we can fill a lot of the water reservoirs, ponds, uh, tanks, and so on. And that's probably one of the biggest concerns people have right now is uh, with with these big pasture systems that don't have another water source, uh, they would they'd be really concerned about, about water. We've had a few people having to haul water to cattle, people having to pull cattle out of pastures and still has forage remaining, uh, but had to move them because of the water source. So hay availability, forage availability, how do you stretch your hay supply? How do you winter cows with very little hay? <laughs> uh, and, and then the water, those would be the big things right now. What are some of the strategies that you share with producers to, hi- to try to minimize hay wastage? I know that's an area you've thought a lot about. Yeah, it, it has. I stumbled into that. We did a, an experiment actually for John Deere, the forage group up there in Ottumwa, Iowa, <clears throat> invited us to do a hay feeding experiment from one of their newer hay balers. And so we did that. <clears throat> we con- we concluded that uh, series of experiments in a year and the student had a year left. And I said, <clears throat> hey, Austin, what would you like to do next? <laughs> and he said, you know what? I'd like to study hay feeders now that we have some experience uh, uh, measuring hay waste. And so that's what he did. And he did a great job. <clears throat> we had to have that paper published. Uh, he discovered that uh, between kind of your lower end, yes, lighter and more convenient hay feeders uh, that are less expensive. Uh, so there's good things about those, but they wasted those feeders, those kind of lower end minimal hay feeders wasted up to 21% of the original bale weight. And it's kind of a shocker, yeah, to think that you would go to the expense of, you know, raising that crop, fertilizing it, maybe maybe treat it with some sort of a herbicide or, or whatever, uh, and then harvest it, haul it into a storage area, and then haul it back out to feed. And at that point, you know, quote, waste 21%. Now, you know, that the waste might be, uh, might not be the correct term because if you distribute that waste, it's going to contribute to, you know, soil nutrients for sure. Maybe but not where if, we want it to. <laughs> if, you're, if you're stacking it up in a pen somewhere, it's probably not helping at all. 
So 21%, uh, the most efficient hay feeders we have discovered or studied uh, waste somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 6%. So there is a radical difference in that efficiency in terms of just hay feeders. So in, in general, you know, what are some of the major differences? Like you mentioned, it was like lightweight for the cheaper ones and stuff. Is it just that it's too easy for them to shove it around? Or is it that, you know, we always see the pictures of the calves sleeping in the middle of the hay feeder and stuff like that, right? Or, you know, so what are what are some of the distinctions between those feeders that help with less wastage? You know, that's a, that's a good one. The comment about are able to shove it around. I really hadn't thought about that, but that may be because, you know, if they can move the feeder over next to where the forage is piled up, they might be able to pull it out and drop it on the ground and quote, waste it. Uh, but I, from our observations, uh, I would say a solid sheeted bottom is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 8% of your hay crop. Okay, a solid sheeted bottom, so about the bottom 18 inches of that feeder uh, is going to save a lot of hay for obvious reasons. It doesn't come trickling out of the bottom. Maybe they can't reach through the bottom to pull it out and waste it, uh, so on and so forth. Um, And then, surprisingly, the top one-third, if it restricts the animal's access to the bale, whether it be whether it be a solid sheeted top similar to the bottom, and you see some bell feeders, you know, configured like that, um, uh, or whether it's just the bars, vertical bars that are close together so the animals can't reach through very well to pull much hay out of the top. That restricts their ability to grab hay right up there up high and fall down onto the pen or pasture surface. The third thing And one, I think maybe one of the most important things is to somehow or another have a configuration that provides feeding space inside the feeder. Okay. Now that's, that's maybe a little bit difficult to, uh, to, to vision, but, any time they can put their head inside the feeder and then maybe reach forward and pull, pull the hay out. And, and their head doesn't have to come out of the feeder. Uh, it, what's being dropped is dropped back inside the feeder and available for later consumption. Uh, so you're basically saying a, a, hay feed, a hay bale feeder that has a bigger uh, diameter or radius than the hay bale itself. So that if, you know, it's seven feet across and the bale is five feet across, there's a, an extra foot on either side of that. I was going to make the same comment because that is that is what all the freaking cows do, right? They reach in, they pull out, they get distracted looking over at something else, right? And then they come back, right? And I, I it's kind of circling back to some of the feed intake differences, right? It would be so, it's so interesting to watch different cow families, you know, the one who comes up and just, you know, head in the bunk, no distractions. She is completely focused on inhaling that feed as fast as possible. And all of her calves are like that. And then the other cow who's like, oh my God, oh my God, did you see that? There was a squirrel over there and oh my gosh, the human is here and, you know, like little nibble bits or whatever. And they look down and the other cow is eating all the feed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and in the meantime, while she's being distracted, she's pulling hay out and dropping it. Yes. Yes. And swinging the supplement everywhere. And yeah, absolutely. I'm so yeah. I, yeah, I think that the little bit larger diameter and then some sort of a basket uh, ring mechanism. I mean, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, uh, maybe basket or cone 
uh, we have we also have studied those feeders. And in fact, some of them I think were made up there in Iowa, but uh, with a, a cone insert into a good quality hay feeder. And gosh, those cone inserts, uh, while they're not convenient and they're not light, they're more difficult to transport, so on and so forth. Uh, but wow, they work really well because that feeding space is created. If you have a cone, that cow has space to put her head in there and she reaches up and pulls the hay out of the cone and it drops down inside the feeder for later consumption. So those would be the three main characteristics and uh, uh, they're very valuable. The results from that series of studies is very consistent. A good hay feeder is a good hay feeder is a good hay feeder. I mean, we just didn't see much variation in those numbers at all. Yeah. And with the low inventory the last several years with persistent drought, it could be something that could really be paying for producers to, to think about. Um, I was just sitting here wondering, um, I've joked in a previous episode that our strength and weakness in the beef industry is our independence, which means we oftentimes don't speak with one voice very well. And sometimes we're guilty of that in science as well, right? We go to different scientific conferences, but we don't always get everybody there. And the extension folks might be in one group and the research folks are in another group. Are there any, is there any kind of national clearinghouse of, you know, drought resources or tips or things like that? You know, thinking about like just what we just talked about, right? Like, you know, hay wastage, you know, avoidance strategies and stuff, but there's probably things that folks in Montana have come up with, right? That could be something that your producers in Oklahoma might use. I'm just curious how, if there's anything like that or how you find those resources. Yeah, I know other than the internet, uh, not really. I mean, there's not an organized system that National Cattlemen's Beef Association would probably uh, be the one, the organization I point to that tries to, you know, reach out and, and collect, uh, and provide access to uh, most other states' work. Uh, but, yes, yeah, in terms of a national clearinghouse, I, I think the answer is, for the most part, the answer is no, other than just Google. <laughs> yeah, well, and everybody's got their, you know, beef reports and things like that that, that are online. And, and, yeah, Google searches and stuff are, are really great if we've got the right keywords and search algorithms and stuff like that. But I just wish that was something that we did better. Um, you know, as scientists across the industry too, right? Like, and, and maybe it's something as simple as from a drought perspective, we need to have a drought symposium at the national animal science meetings. But again, not all the players would necessarily be at a meeting like that. So that's a challenge. Yeah. NCBA would have uh, those drought resources, I'm sure, easily accessible uh, through their, their system. I mean, we have that on our the, the university website, the Animal and Food Sciences website here, we point to drought resources. But, yeah, I, it's a good point. I, we do not really have a system to uh, sort of create a hub like that. It is time to our famous three. All right. Well, our time has flown by. I've really enjoyed our conversation, but we have reached our three final questions. So these are kind of our our lightning round questions. So I'm curious to see what your answers will be for this. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Uh, I would, I guess I would say, you know, from what I do, uh, I work a lot from uh, the National Academy of Sciences uh, Engineering and Medicine's publication, Beef Cattle Nutrient Requirements. Uh, 
Uh, I spent a lot of time in that book uh, because, you know, I, number one, uh, from an extension standpoint, it provides, hey, there it is, it provides <laughs> the foundation uh, for our software program. OSU Calculator is the name of our software program. And those equa- most of those equations that drive that program come from that book. Uh, and then, of course, those equations also are behind most of our fact sheets that we've produced, nutrient requirements for beef cattle, so on and so forth. Um, and then, uh, obviously, for my research program, we're studying maintenance energy requirements. We're studying feed intake. And the really good scientists in our business have been on that committee that produced that book and, and those folks know what they're talking about and doing. There's tremendous, just wonderful literature reviews in that book and so on that covers a wide range of things relative to beef cattle nutrition. So I rely on it probably more than any other you know, resource I can think of. Yeah, we used to call it the NRC. It's the NASM now, as uh, Dr. Lawman uh, described it there, just a slightly different name, but the Nutrient Requirements for Beef Cattle. And it's it's really an amazing student textbook now, too, with the latest 2016 edition. It's, you know, I tell those grad students, like, just go start reading this. We'll start having conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it is good. Yeah, those those folks have done a great job. All right, question number two. What is a book not related to beef that you're currently reading? Well, I'm still reading the Bell Ranch book, uh, Bell Ranch. And, oh, gosh, I forgot the name of the author. Um, but he, he, we, can, we can look that up if we need to. But uh, anyway, I'm still reading uh, the Bell Ranch. It's very interesting. I, I like reading about the history of beef cattle production and particularly the ranching industry. Uh, it was a... It was uh, the Bell Ranch was uh, about a three quarter of a million acre operation, mostly in New Mexico. Uh, and that was started in the probably mid 1850s from a land grant uh, and was gradually kind of divided up over time. But for a long period of time, it was managed as one large operation and they they um, experienced the introduction of developed water systems uh, in that ranch, you know, windmills and so on. Uh, They also experienced that technology was crossbreeding. The first Hereford cattle and then eventually Angus cattle that came in to that part of the world. Um, And then fence. They experienced the period when fence was introduced. And so it's a fascinating book, and I I just like reading uh, historical you know, productions like that one. Nice. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Okay, final question. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? Okay, well, I would, without taking a lot of time to, to think about that, the first thing that popped into my head, in my case, uh, you know, with my, my personal weaknesses, <laughs> I think I think maybe uh, observing, uh, I can think of a couple of people, and I'm not going to mention any names, but a couple of people that have been really good at being frank and upfront with their with their students and with their colleagues uh, about, you know, let's let's just say, um, I'm not sure how to word this, Stephanie, but 
um, needs ab- about needs for improvement or hmm, yep growth. Yeah, maybe you can help me help me yeah. uh, work that yeah. better. But just being being frank and straightforward with my colleagues instead of worrying about uh, whether or not I've hurt their feelings or yeah. Let me uh, let me think of a better way to to say that, but. Um, no, I, I think that's I think that's a, a really good insight, Dave. Like, uh, I think it's Brene Brown that says uh, clarity is kindness, right? So, so sugarcoating things and dancing around things doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily kind, right? Like, if if you just are secretly mad that somebody hasn't made any development, but you haven't told them that they need to make that development, why can we be mad at them? So, we appreciate that honesty in our colleagues. Yeah. So, I yeah, I'd say that would be. Let me let me reword this, but uh, I'd say one of the traits that I've observed in a couple of my colleagues has been just the ability to be frank about you know issues that may come up and and to be honest and straightforward about it right away instead of letting it build and become become an issue. That you know that's just one area that I could use some improvement in. Yeah, I like that. We've had uh, professional development top of mind with the graduate students recently thinking about strengths and some other um, things that we're doing. So I I, I like this question in particular because it makes me think about the things that we appreciate in our colleagues and the things that we want to help make our graduate students or our next generation bring to the table. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Lawman. This has been really great. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. Well, I have too. I appreciate you inviting me to do this.